during the 29 general election, Jeremy Corbyn sort of provided some documents that actually showed that people in government and the Department of Health and Social Care had already had conversations with their opposite numbers in the USA about the USA having access to the NHS. And this, this was, this has been an issue rumbling along for two or three years now. Are the Tories planning to open up the NHS to the Americans in, ter- in, re- in return for a post-Brexit trade deal? Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I'm talking to Andrew Godsell. He's a British writer born in Hampshire, author of, amongst other books, A History of the Conservative Party, the first critical history of the British Conservatives, the World Cup, the the most comprehensive book at the time, at least, we think, uh, of a history of the World Cup and other books like Legends of British History, 15 Minutes of Fame and Planet Football. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Thanks. No problem. Um, Now, we'll probably get to some of your other stuff later, but the reason that I asked you on in the first place was to talk about some of your work talking about NHS privatisation. Now, I have had, I don't know how many conversations with people talking about the the NHS being privatised, and it's one of the things I talk about in in my book, Brexit, the Establishment Civil War, as something to watch out for post-Brexit. And yet every time I bring this topic up, I get two reactions, right? I get either, oh, the NHS is totally not being privatized. That's not happening. You're just talking rubbish. Or it's someone being terrified that it is already privatized and essentially gone. Like where in your mind, at least, is the reality here? I would say the reality is it's it is a major threat. It is happening. It's not obviously I would say, yeah. The idea that it's gone is it is rescuable, but definitely the trends of the last 10 years are speeding up and it, the situation is dire. A lot of people say we've moved from a system that was a national system to a system that effectively is a franchise. And it's almost like the NHS logo is there to make us think the NHS exists in its old format, but it doesn't. Um, I think the sense in 2013, the Conservative government um, carried out the most drastic reorganisation of the NHS since it started in 1948. And a lot of people say um, there's been a campaign that's called the the NHS reinstatement bill, the idea that that a bill will go to Parliament to basically reset the clock back to 1948 to 2013, because the 2013 reorganisation opened it up to a lot more competition. Um, one thing that does get forgotten is the in the legislation, the actual the responsibility of the Secretary of State for Health to oversee the NHS and oversee it in a way to make sure it did flourish and exist. exist that was quietly taken out of his his remit, which a lot of people said, "Well, that is just amazing that that was that happened." Um, so yes, I would say um, increasingly privatisation is happening. I've got plenty of examples I can talk about as we go. But to answer your question, yes, it's still there, but it is in a lot of danger. So, so what were some of the changes that, that happened with this uh, reinstatement bill um, in 2013? And like, what, what original sort of finding principles did it take away? The... Oh, sorry, the reinstatement bill is the attempt to reverse the 2013 um, Health and Social Care Act. Sorry, that's, that's so the reinstatement my, bill. The reorganisation. Sorry, sorry. yeah. Yeah, the, um, yeah. so the, the 2013 reorganisation, um, it introduced the CCGs, the clinical commissioning groups, um, which at a local level actually commission care. The, the providers of the care of the NHS Trust and NHS Foundation Trust, but increasingly also the private sector, the likes of Virgin and Care UK, Inspire and Nuffield, BMI. Um, also, something that does quite often get overlooked is the, G, the, the role of the GP. So originally GPs, basically GP surgeries just got their money from the government and they were part of the core NHS. They're all now on private contracts with NHS England. So although people see 
a CCG is an aggregation of all the GPs in a particular city or geographical area, they're not um, effectively, they sit as a sort of a separate silo. Um, so increasingly, I mean, there was a lot of publicity a week or so ago that Centene, a US company, has bought up 49 GP practices in, in London and surrounding area. Because basically, say it's it's a private contract. It's not guaranteed that your GP is part of the NHS. Basically, any organisation can bid for a contract, and that's increasingly what's happening. So, also I mentioned um, KUK. Um, they um, they have a lot of units within NHS hospitals, and also they own some GP surgeries. And the the main reason that that increasingly private operation is happening within NHS hospitals is simply capacity. Um, it's an amazing fact, which I was amazed when I first saw it. And I thought, is that really true? And asked somebody, where did they find it? The NHS was founded in 1948, a time when we had 50 million people in the country. We've now got, well, we'll find out soon because the census is due. We've got approximately 70 million people in the country. So we've got a 40% increase in population. We've actually got less hospital beds now than we had 70 years ago. And um, most of that, yeah, most of that decrease um, has happened since the days of Margaret Thatcher. I don't want to bamboozle you with facts, but I did write this one now because it's quite um, surprising. In 1987, Britain had 299,000 hospital beds. The last time a sort of a general across the board national count was done a couple of years ago, it was down to 141,000. So in just over 30 years, the amount of hospital beds, um, you know, public NHS hospital beds has halved. So that's why there is increasing need, well, the government argues there's an increasing need for private sector involvement in the NHS to pick up, because they argue that, that the waiting lists are going up. So the way to deal with this is to outsource to private organisations that can do the work. Whereas people who are arguing, sort of, say the NHS reinstatement campaign is basically stop the privatisation. You don't need a private sector in the NHS. Basically all you're doing is you're diverting money ultimately to shareholders of these private organisations. You need a fully funded national service. You actually just need to, the simplest way to do it is just to increase the capacity of the NHS, just basically have more hospitals and more beds. One of the, the the things that like concerns me whenever I see stories like this is I, I always wonder like just how deliberate the, the underfunding is because like, one of the things that comes up uh, quite often in this debate is, is the idea that the Conservatives are like deliberately underfunding or, um, you know, running down the quality of the of the service of the NHS in order to then have the justification to to privatize it because mm. you, you know, it's it is it's such like a for whatever reason it's like a british institution um mm. people love it it's like for for example here in 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 northern ireland um we have it but uh, the south of ireland has a has a much more privatized health system and one of the things that i genuinely would consider and i think i'm not alone here is if we had like a, a vote whether we wanted to be part of a united ireland the fact that they don't have the NHS would be a huge thing for me. Like that would mm. be a huge part of whether I wanted to to vote mm. to be a part of Ireland or not, just because it's, you know, it's a little bit selfish, but you know, I like, I like my, 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 you know, free healthcare, like yeah. personally and as a, and as a principle. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, but like how, how deliberate do you think this is this like running down of the quality of, of, of like NHS services? Cause you could, you could attribute the drop of beds in a way in to some extent, at least to the fact that people are not staying in hospital as long as they used to, they're getting treatment at home. Uh, maybe in their like care home or, or whatever. Mm, but, yeah. Like you could attribute some some of the reduction in beds to that. But how much do you think of it is about like uh, just purposefully running down the quality of the NHS? I do think ideologically the Conservatives have always disliked the NHS. I mean, basically, the it was founded by a Labour government in 1948 when the the legislation went through Parliament in 1946. The Conservatives actually voted against it. 
not and and repeatedly voted at each stage of the legislation against it. Um, and actually, in recent years, when Jeremy Hunt was health secretary, he tried to rewrite history, and and said, ah, oh, but um, the the white paper was actually issued by the wartime coalition government and there was a chap called Henry Willink who was health secretary was a conservative and he, he was the mastermind of the plan but he and I have checked this he himself actually voted against legislation and he said because basically it came out of originally out of the beverage report and he I'm, I've, I've read a book about Bevan wrote during the Second World War and um, he didn't know at the time he was going to be the sort of the architect of the NHS but he wrote about the plans for it and he actually quotes Willink saying yes I support the beverage report but I don't support all of it so basically right from the start um, the Conservatives were opposed to this this idea of a sort of a national paid for by taxation and then and national insurance service that's free at the point of use um, but effectively, because it, it was so successful and so popular, they had to accept it until Thatcher, because her mantra was basically, she didn't believe in the big state, she didn't believe in the public utilities. And she was the one who started to chip away at the NHS and introduce this idea of an internal market, like everything should be sort of competitive and people should sort of be looking to, I mean, it started off with things like outsourcing, cleaning and stuff. Um, but in terms of where we are now, the trouble is the Conservatives will argue, and they, I mean, basically they made everything, um, the general election was at the end of 2019, at the start of 2020, they brought in the NHS Funding Act, and they said, we are going, we are going to spend more money on the NHS than has ever been sent before, and we're going to enshrine, enshrine this in law. Now, in a sense, every government always spends more on the NHS than any previous one, just because inflation and the size of the population goes up. But the actual rate of increase of funding, and again, I, I jotted down the figure, um, across, the, uh, across the history of the NHS, um, funding has increased by 3.7% per annum on average. Since the Conservatives took power in 2010, the average has dropped to 1.4%. Mm. So although in cash terms, they are spending more money on the NHS than anyone before. And they said, oh, yes, you know, we, we've made a big thing. We've put this in law. In real terms, they're not. And in real terms, they are, as I went through, like the, the 2013 reorganisation, what I say to people is, as well as privatising the service, they're actually fragmenting it. They're making it more... There's more and more different bodies within the NHS being created. It causes this, it sends, it causes confusion and distrust because people, if they've got a problem with the NHS, they don't know where to go to. Um, and they don't, the simple model of the government, the, the initial model was the government would basically dish out X millions of pounds to each hospital, to each you know, GP surgeries in a certain area and they would just treat their local patients. Then this idea of patient choice came in, that if you, if you want to have your procedure done, theoretically, you can have your procedure done anywhere in England, if you're in England. Um, if you say, oh yes, my, you know, and people can argue, it might be that your local hospital can do that procedure, but, you um, you end up going to the other end of the country because you you can you know there's evidence that another hospital can do it better, but all it does and another thing is there's this giant um, internal market where different parts of the NHS are battling against each other for scarce resources and it literally like I said like this NHS reinstatement um, campaign reckons that the actual cost. Of, of running this internal market. It's about 10 billion pound a year. So that's money sucked out of patient care to pay for an army of sort of contract people, finance people, legal people. And it's all the NHS's money. We all should be part of one big team, but increasingly it's fractured and fragmented. So you hear me, okay? You're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. sorry, you were talking about, sorry. Okay. No, yeah. no, I was just, I. Yeah, don't worry. Um, so, like you talk about the, the the fragmentation and the cost of that that internal market. Like one of the arguments that would be made, um, at least, is that the the fragmentation and the sort of like decentralization would be 
a like a an asset and a and a virtue, not like a, a hindrance that that by you know trying to decentralize control you can you can have things that that are I don't know more responsive mm-hmm. in, in real time that you can sort of better allocate resources um in like local environments. Like what why do you think it's important to to have it as a like a like a just a single like top-down state-run body as opposed to like a whole bunch of different groups? Um, the problem is, and I mean, I, I work in the NHS myself and I work in patient funding. I'm always very careful because, because I've had discussions with my employers and also because I did stand, I mean, we might talk about this later, I did stand for, for local, local council election in my area where there was quite a big hot topic to do with the NHS walking centre being closed. So I always have to be, I, I always want to be careful. I always say anything I say is stuff that's in the public domain. It's not stuff that I know because I work there. Mm. I work in patient funding. So there are increasingly, um, there are some proceed. they're called procedures of limited clinical value, where effectively before your GP would say, if you want a hip replacement, a knee replacement, if you've got um, carpal tunnel or trigger finger, effectively your GP would just say, yes, you need this done, you can go to the hospital. Now criteria are being set up for for all these procedures and there's about 30 of them nationally. The problem is each clinical commissioning group then decides its own criteria. So when people talk, say for example, the the thing that quite often turns up in in the media is what they call the postcode lottery to do with IVF assisted conception that different areas have an age limit for the point at which they'll stop funding women to do this or how many attempts they'll get. So it's really unfair. It seems that someone, you know, someone will, some areas say that they will stop assisting conception at the age of 35. Um, So in Hampshire, it's 35, but you go to Farnham in Surrey, which is five miles over the border and it's 38. And if you move, you have to reapply for funding. So it seems to me, why are people in the county of Hampshire, any different people in Surrey, Birmingham, Liverpool, wherever, it does. It just doesn't seem to me that we need in every city and every county people making decisions about criteria um, when effectively we're all the same. I can understand say an area like a a deprived inner city where they might want to put invest extra resources in particular projects to you know improve say people's health and well-being but generally across the country i'm not saying we need a you know a one size fits all the government you know the the argument against the state is you know the government the man in white knows best and everybody has to do what they say but i don't understand the need for so much fragmentation and so many decisions that are going to be made. And it does seem that it's, like I said, the postcode lottery sometimes, it does seem very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It does seem a bit arbitrary the way that one, you know, one, one city will make a decision different to another. I just feel that if we, I mean, I mean, I so I say to people, we don't need to look far for a model that works. Wales, and Scotland, I must admit, actually, I don't know much about the NHS in Ireland, Northern, Northern Ireland, but in Wales, they have local health boards and the same in Scotland. There's very little private in, private sector input. And basically a local health board in Wales will, whereas before in, in England, you've got the CCGs commission the service and the NHS trusts and the private sector organizations provide the service. In Wales, you've got the body, the health board effectively um, does both parts of the role. So it's commissioning itself effectively to provide hospital services. And that seems a much clearer model because you're not bringing in all this, as I say, like all this sort of legal and contractual and financial barriers to things. Basically, you just I said the simple model is if every big city and every county had several they called super hospitals hospitals that can do everything and everybody was encouraged to go to the local hospital with the confidence their local hospital can do everything um that would be a much simpler system and a much more efficient system in my mind 
and that was the, that was the sort of the founding principle for decades and it's it that's we've gone away from that in the last few years mm. i think that's like the, a key point to, to make sure like this isn't things that you're proposing that have never been tried like that's yeah just how it used to run it used to um, run and that's what we want back yes so like what what do you look at as being the the areas of of concern at the moment in terms of 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 privatization of of different nhs services like where where is this happening where people don't realize um i've already spoke about centene and buying up the gp practices and they are a u.s company and of course there was there was argument during the 29 general election jeremy corbyn sort of provided some documents that actually showed that people in government and Department of Health and Social Care had already had conversations with their opposite numbers in the USA about the USA having access to the NHS. And this, this, was, this has been an issue rumbling along for two or three years now. Are the Tories planning to open up the NHS to the Americans in, in return for a post-Brexit trade deal? And people are saying it's not going to happen. The government's basically there's a trade bill that's been going through Parliament the last few months, and the opposition parties have, have tried to get a clause added to say the NHS is off the table; it will not form part of any trade deal. And the government keeps saying, voting against it, voting it down. The Tory MPs say, "Well, we're voting it down because it's a ludicrous idea. This is never going to happen." But the reality is, it's already happening. Now, one of the big moves. Um, basically, only eight years on from the 2013 reorganisation, there have been more reorganisations and the, the current thrust of the reorganisation in England is to go to what's called integrated care systems. Now, on the surface, it looks nice because the idea is that all of the different NHS plus private providers within a, a particular, they're normally on a county basis, will integrate more to to achieve economies of scale i mean here in hampshire we've got like eight ccgs and the idea is they're all going to merge into one super ccg so this idea was said look there's different disparities in the way they deal with things but the, the, the super ccg will work alongside the hospital so it all looks nice and think oh yes this is better economies of scale this is going to be more efficient the thing that they, the government don't tell you is and also it was portrayed in the media there'll be less contracting with the private sector but what the reality is there'll be less small short-term contracts with the private sector providers and the scope for actually having big contracts that last 10 15 years now in hampshire the the sort of the the shadow integrated care system because the 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 legal basis for this hasn't been established because the government originally, when Theresa May didn't have a majority, they just, they just couldn't get it through Parliament. And obviously with COVID and everything else, with Brexit's happening. But the plan is to actually get the legal basis for it this year. But the, the Hampshire integrated care system, um, there's some, something that's becoming a big issue is it's called health population management. The idea of lots of data about who your people are, what sort of illnesses there are, affecting people in a particular population sort of what treatments are happening recovery times this is a massive market and there's a lot of u.s companies that are experts in this market and are increasingly trying to buy into it and the hampshire although the capacity to do this work exists in the nhs in hampshire they have recent or hampshire and either way they've actually recently let a contract to a company called cerna which is a US-based multinational to do this work, rather than you know, invest in invest in um, in existing NHS provision. Again, also something that's happening increasingly is the NHS trust will actually. This this one really does surprise me. A lot of people, occupational health for NHS staff, which used to be run. By the NHS. So if you know NHS staff have got a long-term illness, how will it affect their work? They will go and see an NHS nurse or doctor. Mm. Now that is increasingly being outsourced to private companies. Again, the argument, yeah, <laughs> you look quizzical. The argument is some of these private companies have got more staff and they can see you quickly and you know they've got more appointments available. But my argument is, but you're disinvesting in the NHS because if you've got an NHS 
as an NHS employee, if I've got a health issue, I'd like to see an NHS clinician mm. rather than someone from private sector company. So effectively, where that capacity exists in the NHS to do that work, you're disinvesting it if you're actually paying as an NHS body money to a private company to do that work. Mm. So it is, it is, it, so my argument, yes, it is happening. And increasingly, uh, companies from the USA are interested in it. I mean, the, the integrated care system model, which I've mentioned, originally it was, it was called accountable care organizations, which is the very name that they use in the USA. And the idea is there that a, an accountable care organization gets given however many millions or billions for a year to provide care for its population. If they successfully manage to ration that care, because they've got private sector involvement, effectively any money they don't spend, they can keep, which again is there doesn't seem to be any safeguard to prevent that happening in Britain. So it's not clear who, who the ultimate budget holders will be for these organisations that have been set in embryo at the moment. And the, the scope for private sector involvement and private sector profiteering from them. So like, it's a bit technical, but I hope that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, no, that's all right. I mean, if, if anyone's interested in just how, just how screwed up the uh, US healthcare system is, I did an interview with uh, Dr. David Belk that I will link in the description who uh who wrote a book all about the the ways in which the insurance industry uh essentially makes the cost just skyrocket and he told me the story about uh, about a woman who was prescri- who he prescribed um medication that i can't remember the name of but she uh, essentially he uh he prescribed it to her and through her insurance it was going to cost like a thousand dollars a month and she went to costco and bought it for like 50 um I, like, <laughs> uh, so yeah if anyone wants to understand just how, how screwed up and how we don't yeah. want that then yes. uh, have a listen to that um so uh, you mentioned actually that you're um that you work in the nhs like w- what do you what do you do and why why do you like believe and campaign and write so passionately about about wanting to save the nhs I used to say to people i was born in an nhs hospital and i was educated in a comprehensive school so right from the start i've always believed in the importance of public services um i've been a member of the labor party throughout my adult life a little bit disenchanted with the new under new management they call it i've always been quite from the radical wing of the labor party um but always loyal to to the the party and not necessarily always agreeing with with the leader or the policies um i have stood for for local elections several times um about a year after I started working for the NHS, I, I touched on it earlier, um, I stood for a Labour Party in my home city of Southampton, and there was a big issue locally that um, we had a walk-in centre, um, which was due to be closed. The, the, the argument of it being closed was that um, the money was needed to put, to put money into community nursing. But basically, Southampton's a city um where there's a lot of most of the nhs facilities are cities basically divided by a river and most of the nhs facilities are on the west side of the city um there's two hospitals they're both in the west side and um this nhs walking center was a really important resource for for out of our out of hours people who couldn't you know when the gps were closed um in the evenings and the weekends, which was serving the east half of the city. Unfortunately, after a major battle, it did get closed down. Um, um, the, I mean, the, the plan is, well, it's there is still hope that it might be reinstated. Um, so it's something, yeah, so obviously I've always felt passionately about the NHS. Um, in the last seven years, I've worked for the NHS and involved in in campaigns locally so it's 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 grown um and i i've been tweeting relentlessly about the nhs particularly during covid i do feel i feel that covid the crisis has has increasingly shown up the the 
the unfitness of the Conservative government to run the NHS. And I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of publicity in the last few days about the, the test and trace fiasco. Mm. The, the budget for test and trace was 22 billion in the financial year we're coming towards the end of. And in the budget last year, the government put 15 billion in for next financial year. So that's 37 billion pound. The House of Commons Public Accounts Committee released a report yesterday saying there is um, not much evidence that it's been effective. Mm. Um, the trouble is the government are branding it as NHS test and trace, but most of the work has been outsourced to Serco, mm. who in turn, in turn have outsourced a lot of the work to other organisations, uh, G4S, Randox, Amazon, Shaky Edge, you know all about these things. Um, I mean, one of the most striking things is um, it's just a massive amount of money, £37 billion. And one thing that gets overlooked is there's a massive conflict of interest because Edward Arger, who's one of the ministers of state at the, um, so effectively Matt Hancock's deputy, he's one of, one of the health ministers. Until a few years ago, he was an executive at Serco. Um, the chief executive of Serco is Rupert Soames, who is brother of Nicholas Soames, who was a Conservative MP until the last general election for many decades and grandson of Winston Churchill. So there's, it, there's, a, there's a very close link between the Conservative Party and Serco and many other of these other outsourcing companies. And it's just it's just a phenomenal amount of money. And obviously, on top of that is also all the billions of pounds spent um, on sourcing PPE during the pandemic. And there's been a lot of reporting about a lot of companies that had no previous experience of sourcing PPE have been given multi-million pound contracts. And a lot of these companies are people who sort of rapidly set themselves up and then the trail goes back and it turns out a lot of them are actually friends and family and donors of the Conservative Party. Um, and there's this what's called the VIP lane, which again, the government hasn't been transparent about how certain companies were, were given preferential access to, to contracting. And it got to the stage where a couple of weeks ago, um, because the contracts hadn't been published within the legal timetable Matt Hancock was actually taken to court and the high court actually judged that he'd broken the law um he said oh we were busy procuring PPE we didn't have time to um issue the contract you think well the contract documents are already existing they've presumably been emailed to somebody it doesn't take long just to bung pdfs of them on the government website so the, the suspicion is it, it was an attempt to to cover up the extent of of this fiasco and then literally a few days after matt hancock was found to have broken the law boris johnson stood up in parliament and said oh we've been transparent we've now published all the contracts so then there was another court hearing three days later at which point it was established that over 100 of these contracts still hadn't been published and it just frustrates me that not just in terms of NHS privatisation, but the, uh, well, beyond frustration, anxiety, anger, millions of us are feeling it. We, we just have a government that has made a shock hit. It, its response to COVID has been shocking. We've got the official death toll is 125,000, but that only includes, they worked out on the basis of people who've had a positive COVID test within and, and died within 28 days of that test. The actual total um, on the government's website based on death certificates is 140,000, which seems to me to be a more accurate measure of how many people have died. Chris Whitty, as the NHS chief medical officer, said only a couple of days ago, we could be looking at another 30,000 deaths. And just the combination of the, the death toll, which per head of the population is one of the worst in the world, and the enormous amounts of money that have been spent on an inefficient response to it um which is despair and the problem is it seems that the government um and the media um it's like test and trace is is portrayed as a failure in some way of the nhs even though most of the work isn't being done by the nhs whereas the 
the good thing that has been success is obviously the this the, the rapid speed of development of vaccine and the rollout of the vaccine mm. which is scientists plus the nhs that done that but the government are taking a lot of credit for for the effective effectiveness of that so i mean one of the things that does frustrate me is is the way the mainstream media portrays things but then we all know the way done and that's why we have independent media that's why you and i are talking today mm. <laughs> so uh yeah so well i said it, it, it's sorry i'm probably smiling but because I, I try to be a positive person and i try to yeah. I, I know a lot of people are very are very really upset really distraught very anxious about the whole situation and it it just i think if we've been told couple of years ago there would be a pandemic you know 140,000 potentially 170,000 people would die billions would be wasted on an inefficient response and people would say it wouldn't happen here so a message it's again with the NHS it privatization the government say it won't happen but increasingly it is happening I mean there's yeah there's there's so much to 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 kind of uh, I I'm, I'm attempting to reserve my comments on uh, the death toll until we have, um, I know there's going to be either a court case or a public inquiry um, into like just, just how accurate the death toll is, high or low, um, just based on some of the, 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 the amount of people that were had COVID put on their death certificate without a test or just, I'm, I'm reluctant to comment on the numbers until we have like an actual assessment of, of how mm. accurate they are. But like, for me, the, the big thing is, is like the, the pure kleptocracy that's gone on. Mm. Um, and the, 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 the test and trace system is, is the third most expensive project in human history. Is it really? I know, I know it was real. Oh. Mm-hmm. that the you only the two things are. yeah yeah i do the two things that oh. cost more is the u.s interstate highway system and the right. inter- and the international space station those right. are the only two projects that have cost more than test and trace or at I least didn't that's, realize, yeah. that's 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 the, the 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 fact that's doing the rounds at the minute um i could right. be wrong oh, right. no i've not seen that actually so to come back to the 37 billion i said that basically it was quietly increased the budget was quietly increased in the budget on wednesday last week mm-hmm. on thursday the government announced the offer of a one percent pay rise to nhs staff and because we can't afford more than that and i mean i'm part of a campaign it's called nhs pay 15 basically it's to give across the board all nhs staff a 15 percent pay rise basically just to reverse the real terms pay cut over a decade of tory austerity where where pay rises there's been pay freezes in most years and very small pay rises in other years Mm. and the cost of giving all of the nhs a 15 percent pay rise this year would be less than eight billion pound but we can't i mean basically i was saying come back to this nhs funding act that the government enshrined in law the nhs funding a year ago built in that was based on the budget the budget assumption there was that there would be a 2.1 percent pay rise for this coming year for all nhs staff and that was enshrined in law but is now a one percent offer or at least a one percent recommendation from the government to the pay review body on the basis that nhs staff should be grateful they're getting a one percent pay rise which in terms within base compared with inflation is actually going to be a pay cut for next year because other people have had their pay frozen um but as we know their pet projects yeah there's all the billions for them yeah, they throw money at it. I just and think it's like, like HS2 and various other things. Um, you know, the, the, the government, and again, we were told for, for years, austerity, we can't afford these things. But then with pandemic, and I mean, putting people on furlough is a good idea, but suddenly billions, the government could, and basically, again, this is something that's become increasingly a topic of conversation in the last few days. The government can afford to do that because it doesn't borrow money. It just asks the Bank of England to print more money which it notionally borrows at a 0% interest rate, well, at a 0% interest rate, because the government and the Bank of England are just two arms of, of, the, of the state apparatus. So it's not as though we're going to have to, obviously, there is a national debt, which is like two trillion pounds, and it goes up each generation, and each generation borrows on the basis that the next generation will pay for it. 
And but then that is how. I mean, a lot of it. I'm mean, not going into the history of the national debt. A lot of it was to fund wars. But then at the end of the Second World War, we had a Labour government that built the NHS. It built a million. And, and Aaron Bevan was a health manager, um, so the health minister. He he joked and because his his role was health and housing. And he said, I'd probably spend like an hour a week on housing matters. But he oversaw a, uh, a programme of a million council houses were built in six years of that Labour government. And we you know, like child benefit, the welfare state, a whole load of things were done. And it was consciously, the, the country was in ruins, both sort of, you know, physically in ruins, the housing stock would run down. Um, the financial si situation was dire because we'd had to borrow loads of money for the Americans. But it was a conscious plan of we, you know, the country deserves better. After two world wars in the space of a quarter of a century, our people deserve better. We will invest in our future. And that sort of political settlement of we will have nearly full employment, we will have prosperity, we will have people will get increasing better sort of political and social rights. That settlement sort of held good for 30 years or more until Thatcher started to undermine it. And unfortunately, things of people, the thing that frustrates me is people. People get cynical about politics. People start to believe it's like, I mean, like the MPs expenses scandal a decade ago. It's, it's, it's like all politicians are the same. They're all they're only in it for their egos and their money. And people, I think as a country, we can do a lot better. We have done better in the past. We can do better again. I mean, we're moving into much wider issues, but that's the thing that I mean. That's something that really keeps me in focused on politics is the belief that ultimately we will have a government. So it's a question of I feel the people with the good ideas and the goodwill who want who believe in a better society rather than a selfish society. Everybody just thinks about their own short-term financial gain. That's that's what motivates me to to be involved and has always motivated me throughout my adult life. Um, just I just believe that we deserve so much better than the current government has given us. Mm. Um, it frustrates me that um, obviously millions of people see differently, but perhaps perhaps people's opinions will change. But mm. uh, I mean, it's yeah that that's that's difficult. Like the 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 it's it's it becomes not an issue of like like what side of uh, you stand on certain things it's like a it's what's your priority kind of issue i think is what what comes down to, to to leading people to vote conservative even though they care about the nhs um they, they don't see it as like being under threat or as like as big a priority as i don't know like shutting down the woke people or or whatever mm. whatever it is um but you mentioned you are not a big fan of keir starmer and and his uh his current um new management know, as he calls yeah, it the yeah. new management the 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 the, the, the campaign to abandon all of his original promises that he's he's actually doing a pretty good job in in managing to just like forget all of them i think uh but like do, do you see some of the the sort of more left-wing momentum-y Jeremy Corbyn side of of Labour breaking off in and forming a new party because this is something I've been I've been looking at recently and like whether we're going to get a th an, like another or maybe two or three sort of parties that will spring up between now and the next election. I don't think it will happen in the sense that um I mean, the, 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 the famous phrase is the Labour Party is a broad church, and that is, is, has been the case for decades. Um, I think... I mean, like, there's a broad church, and then there's agreeing with everything the Tories say. There's, mm. like, a, I mean, that's what, that's, what, that's what frustrates me, is... Um, and I know I'm increasingly seeing... Sorry. Um, pick up then. Um, I'm increasingly seeing people are leaving the Labour Party because they're just so disenchanted. I mean, I've been a member throughout, I say, right, right, right back to the 80s. And I stayed loyal to the party when Blair was leader. I mean, I stopped being active, but I still believed in the Labour Party, even though I didn't believe in the current leadership. 
Um, I mean, I myself, I was suspended from the Labour Party in 2016. About 10,000 people were suspended during the, the Jeremy Corbyn's second leadership election um, because of comments on social media. And basically people, the anti-Corbyn faction at Party HQ just trolled social media. And basically anybody who retweeted particular tweets they didn't like um got suspended for bringing the party into disrepute in fact the evidence they sent me it was it wasn't any comments i've made myself it was two retweets and the evidence they sent to me um showed i hadn't even retweeted them and i battled with them for what and it, but it was it was it was it was a nightmare and then we all miraculously got well nearly all of us got unsuspended about a month after the leadership election and there was talk, I mean, it might sound like a crazy conspiracy theory, but I mean, I don't know if you know, have heard about the Labour leaks report that came out. When yeah, yeah. I, spoke, I spoke to um, Rory O'Donnell, uh, who was a staffer in Corbyn's, I, I, I don't know if I would say inner circle, but he ran, right. he, he ran the battle bus in 2019. So mm. uh, he's a friend of mine. I used to work with him. So yeah, I'm, I'm aware of the, of the leaks yeah. report. <laughs> so, I mean, the thing, yeah, so that report came out back in April, about the time Keir Starmer became leader, and it was showing there was actually a unit within Labour Party HQ at the 2017 general election, which was actually um, putting funding towards what were called the, you know, the moderate Labour MPs, the anti-Corbyn ones, the people who'd been part of the, the attempt in the PLP to bring him down. And arguably you know we came quite close we 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 removed the tories majority if we had a more focused campaign we we could arguably have won the election which is causing a lot of argument um so yes i mean i just actually i saw just before we started talking i saw some and on twitter angela rayner was was asked this morning about the nhs pay rise and um she said oh well we we went we went Labour offered five percent last election, but we lost, so we're not committing to a figure now. And I mean, the Green Party's recently come out; they support the fifteen percent pay rise. It, it really is quite demotivating. Um, what would fifteen? I just don't. So, so again, what would fifteen percent be for like a minimum wage person? That would be what up to about ten, ten or eleven pounds an hour, something like that. Um, I think. Yeah, sorry, I hadn't thought in terms of per hour, but um, no, it was just just popped in my yeah. head. Like, what 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 yeah. earning um generally? Well, like, what would be the like the minimum wage? I mean, most nearly nearly every. I don't think there's many people in the NHS on minimum wage. I think there are it's above minimum wage to the bottom scales. But then on alongside that, people working in care work. A lot of people in care work are on minimum wage, um, which does get overlooked mm. quite but often it, they're on a lot less than minimum wage because they're 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 the time to fill their i know their because yeah doesn't, doesn't add up to, to the yeah that, that's yeah. the problem yeah the, the private care companies will only pay you literally for the hours you're with that the the, the local authority care will actually pay you, you you'll get a, a shift and you'll do so many hours and you'll get paid for the the travel time between but uh yeah so i mean it's just the lack of ambition that 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 let's say just mention Angela Rayner because she's been on on the telly this morning the, the lack of ambition the lack of the lack of Keir Starmer it's this I think it's the idea is that Jeremy Corbyn was presented by the media as being dreadfully extreme far too radical but a lot of the policies that Labour were advocating in, in the two general elections he led us into were pretty much mainstream social democratic policies across a lot of you know Scandinavia across a lot of Europe and it's you know the idea that we should have a fully funded public NHS that we should um, start to think about taking some of the utilities back into public ownership it's it's not it's you know it, it, it wasn't dangerously radical it was just the sort of stuff that decades ago people just Did. it was mainstream politics yeah. back in the 70s um so i just i feel that keir starmer and his 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 team are are trying to make labor appear moderate and i've heard them say we're, you know we need to be a critical friend of the government during the pandemic no you should be 
jumping up up and down every day pointing to all the corruption um and the failures and and, and the massive scale of the death toll and i just i mean i'll always stay loyal to labor because i just feel like to come to your question about will there be a split i don't think there will be because there hasn't been one in the past and you see people like Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell and there are the socialist campaign group within the parliamentary Labour Party. They've got about 25 MPs who are the sort of the, the strong left wing group They're They're all staying loyal because I don't think in the space of three and a half years till the next general election. It, it sounds an attractive proposition. We'll have a radical socialist party that will will be a, a clear alternative to Tories, but I just don't think that you can achieve that and win in the general election. I just think, I think the battle has to be for, for radical socialists to hopefully keep arguing the case within the Labour Party um, and hopefully some of the policies and, and not just the policies, but the, like you said, the, 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 the general thrust of the the image the Labour Party's putting across it just needs to be more radical and a lot more challenging to the to the to the government and the problem is like I know we shouldn't believe opinion polls because you know we we shouldn't but it it it, it it's the Conservatives just keep on being ahead of Labour in the opinion polls despite the scale of the pandemic despite so many things that happened despite the fact that the Brexit, and I probably don't want to get into the exact of Brexit, but mm. however, whatever you felt about Brexit, for or against it, the promises they've made, <laughs> and, you know, I used to have a litany, I said, people said, oh, you know, Brexit, uh, I said, well, you know, the Tories said, you know, if you vote yes in the referendum, we'll, we'll trigger Article 50, and within two years, we will left, we'll have a trade deal, we won't be paying a divorce payment, we'll leave the single market, We'll, we'll leave the customs union. We'll have loads of wonderful new trade deals around the world. We'll have 350 million pound a week extra that we'll spend on the NHS. And it took, you know, well, nearly five years on for the referendum. We've only recently left the transition period. Um, so the thing, the many things they promised, some of them didn't happen, and those that did happen took a lot longer to happen than um, they said they would. And increasingly the you know again i mean just obviously you're you're in northern ireland the uh just the simple mechanics of trade between great britain and northern ireland because because of they uh, they they had they had the backstop which i mean it seemed to me an eminently sensible solution um in in terms of um where we are and but they were opposed to this so they created a slightly different scenario that Boris Johnson, so Boris Johnson could say, I've negotiated a better deal than Theresa May. Um, and, well, the reality of it isn't working. And there's already figures coming out so showing sort of like, both in terms of the GBNI trade blockages and also that, you know, some of the exports from Britain to, to continental Europe are, are, are slowing. Um, so, yeah. I, I just I feel the thing that frustrates me is um, we're, 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 I feel that we're I watch obviously I get a lot of my news from Twitter and, and social media and generally in the independent media and then I turn on the BBC and ITV news and it's like the thing that frustrates me is it's portrayed that this I feel the Johnson government is really dangerous and really extreme and really both in simultaneously incompetent in many ways but dangerously following a very nasty nationalistic selfish agenda and people in the media it's like the sanitized it's like you know they you know they prorogued parliament they closed tried, tried to close parliament down for five weeks mm. to stop scrutiny of brexit um and it's not a normal government to me i mean i'm really interested in political history i think we are in a situation where the last time we had a government this 
incompetent and dangerous. We're going back to sort of the Baldwin Chamberlain era of the 30s when they were appeasing fascism and we had mass unemployment and we ended up with a war that we weren't prepared for. I just uh, think everything just... turned all right. Turned out all Say right. Again, sorry? Everything turned out all right there. You know, well, it took six years to win the war, didn't it? <laughs> we should have, if, if, yeah. Well, you know, I hope you're not being too serious about that. But the, the, yeah, the thing is, it, it, I just do really feel that we, we, it's almost like Johnson has seen what Trump has done. And it, it used to be the thing is politicians would tell lies, but they couldn't lie day after day about major things where there was evidence to show they were lying and get away with it and it's like like i said because because of the prorogation of parliament because in the latter part of theresa may being prime minister the government was actually in contempt of parliament for refusing to to release documentation i'm told to release about the brexit deal because dominic cummings wouldn't answer questions about the funding of the the brexit referendum and was in contempt of parliament was still allowed to be the Prime Minister's chief advisor, and then he broke lockdown. It wasn't until six months later he upset Boris Johnson's partner, then he had to go. But it's almost as though no government minister, I mean, Priti Patel was accused of breaking the ministerial code by bullying civil servants. Boris Johnson just said, no, I've made the judgment. The independent report says she broke the code, but I've made the judgment she didn't. Matt Hancock, as I said earlier, broke the law. Johnson repeatedly lies to Parliament. Mm. None of these people resign. In, I mean, I remember like the Thatcher and Major area era, loads of government ministers had to reside during John Major's cataclysmic time in office because of sleaze and scandal and incompetence. But it just doesn't happen anymore. They, they're just not being held to sort of accountable standards that we expect. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean... It's 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 pretty disgusting. Um, I want to take this opportunity before we wrap up here, actually, to, to okay. plug, plug my book, uh, Brexit, <laughs> uh, Brexit: The Establishment Civil War, because we I talk in the end a lot about, and I'm not sure I would call it nationalistic as much as um, Trump's kind of quite overt America first thing was. But there's the the thing that concerns me most is the quite extreme free market neoliberalism that is embraced by the 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 almost the entirety of the cabinet um and uh the, my book basically talks about how social media was used first to exploit a whole bunch of divisions um in order to uh, successfully you know campaign for brexit and now it will be used to uh further privatize and sell off uh what remains of the british state so if you want to hear all about that fun story, go and order my book. Uh, the link is in the description below. Uh, <laughs> uh, so Andrew, um, do you want to, is there something you want to plug before, before you, before we finish up here? Um, well, I was tempted to say, um, <laughs> I did, <laughs> for plugging books, I did write, I, I, I've got a copy here just to hand because I was just reading it before we started talking. Why not? Oh, hang on, I'm holding that. Why not trust the Conservatives? Yeah. Um, it's a book I wrote. It was published in 2015, um, which is actually a critical history of the Conservative Party. Um, I started off with the. I, I wrote originally many years ago, and then I rewrote it um, with the naive belief that if I wrote a book about how dreadful the Conservative Party is, people would buy it and read it, and it might have influence um it's no it's, it was by no means a bestseller but uh when I, when i'm feeling uh i do actually plan to do an, do an update this year i'm sort of writing an update so uh well anyway i just said i said for, for me politics i probably got the gist of it from, from <laughs> maybe your podcast um the the um for me politics and history are very much intertwined and there is a lot to be learned from from looking and making comparisons past and present and just understanding why things happen and the roots of how things happen and 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 so that's just just my belief that if, if we learn from the mistakes of the past hopefully we will not repeat them and hopefully do things better in the future or as i said before in terms of the lhs if we look at when it worked better and just just go back to those values, really. So, um, that feels anyway, like... many thanks for talking. It's been really interesting. Yeah, no and, problem. Uh... That feels like a nice positive note on which to end. Um, right. So, yeah. Uh, check out uh, Andrew's books. I will link everything in the in the description below. So, thanks very much. Right.
All right. Great. Thanks. No Cheers. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, follow me on Twitter, or sign up to our mailing list. Thanks a lot to our sponsor, ExpressVPN, the number one most trusted VPN. Get lightning fast connectivity with servers in 160 locations across 94 countries. Keep your browsing privacy safe with ExpressVPN and get a 35% discount on 12 months of ExpressVPN when you follow the link in the description below. Don't forget my book is now out and available to order on Amazon and on bookshop.org. That's Brexit, the Establishment Civil War. And most importantly, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.